Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us Benjamin Story. He is a professor of politics at Furman University, co-director of the Tocqueville program there. Uh, he and his wife, Jenna Silver Story, who is also at Furman and, and the other director of the Tocqueville program, they have uh, a book uh, just out called why we are restless on the modern quest for contentment, which is our topic today. Uh, ben, thank you for joining us. Mark, thanks so much for having me on. It's, it's wonderful to talk to a, a First Things audience. Okay, well, it'd be nice to talk about why we are restless, but I, I don't have time today. I, I've got other things to do, okay? Uh, so, anyway. <laughs> don't we all? First, <laughs> well, first, just tell us quickly, what does the Tocqueville program at Furman do? Ah, well, the Tokyo program is a program designed to help students think about the moral and uh, philosophic questions that are at the heart of political life. And so, of course, we're all familiar with the debates of our politics, and we think that we can help students gain some really useful perspective on those things by stepping back, by stepping back in time, by stepping back to larger philosophic questions that allow them to think about politics in the perspective of some issues that are of more enduring importance than whatever happens to be in front of us right now. And so we've been working at that, at that project for uh, about a dozen years now. You've been kind enough to come down and be a guest for us. It was great. And it, 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 has, it has really built a nice intellectual community at Furman. That's one of the things we really care about is creating a place in which students socialize and their intellectual lives come together. And so that's what we've tried to do. I did come down. You got, you got a nice group. It was a very nice atmosphere and a lot of committed students. You, you think there's a hunger for the deeper reflection than just current events would provide. I think there's a profound hunger for these things. In fact, I don't know what, what you've seen in your neck of the woods, but down here during this year of the pandemic, when so much has been shut down, my students have been more interested in these questions than ever. The, uh, and so I think people really want to think about this stuff. And it is, um, and that's, that's a hopeful thing to me. All right, the book, Why We Are Restless. Tell us first, what are the major signs of restlessness in the world today, in, in your opinion? I think the most salient signs of this are things like distraction and anxiety which all of us know all too well. And I think those things are signs of a particular kind of restlessness that we are interested in in this book. As um, many of your listeners are probably familiar with the great line of St. Augustine, that our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And so in some ways, restlessness is a very old phenomenon. In this book, we're interested in a specifically modern kind of restlessness, which we think comes 
from trying to pursue happiness in a certain way. That is, we're trying to pursue happiness imminently. We're trying to make ourselves happy here and now. And when the soul tries and fails to make itself happy in precisely that way, that's when we think we see this particular, particularly modern kind of restlessness that is marked by characteristics like the love of diversion, which is so common among us. I imagine you, you'd see that the web is a big part of this. You know, the, the sort of instant, the instant gratification, the instant response of, of the web has only made, I, again, it's an old problem, but it's only made things that much worse, especially for these, these, these kids coming in with their iPhones. I think that's exactly right, Mark, and you've, you've written very well about this. One of the things that was really striking in working on this book to us was that the Tocqueville writes already, Alexis de Tocqueville, who's one of the authors that we treat, comes to America in the 1830s and makes a study of this, of this country. And one of the things that he writes all the way back then is that there's nothing more hostile to meditation, he says, than the interior of a democratic society. He thinks the problem of distractedness is an intense problem then, a problem that goes along with our democratic character. And of course, that problem has only become more intense by means of these kind of digital accelerators that you're, that you're describing. We have, a, we have a natural attraction to diversion, to distractedness, and now we have these extremely powerful devices that are engineered to cater to that desire the, uh, for sort of getting away from ourselves, the, uh, which is so much of what we do on the internet. I, I would say that the designers of these, these social media and of games, they actually want to aggravate restlessness because restlessness is, always wants to seek uh, relief. And they aggravate it and then promise relief through their own, their own tools. I actually would say this is true about the media as well. The media wants a restless, a restless audience because, again, people will seek out uh, ways of coping with that restlessness. And then the media presents itself as something of uh, an answer to the restless. But it, but it doesn't help. It, it only keeps it, keeps it going. Do you? I think. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I I think that's I think that's right, Mark. And I think it's not just it's. We can see this in media. We can see this on the internet. We can see it in all sorts of realms of our lives. How often do we let ourselves think that we're going to make ourselves happy through one more nice meal at a restaurant, through a new fancy pair of pants, through a new honor? that we win in our professional pursuits. We've got little glittering baubles around us all the time. Restlessness is good for commerce. And I think people know that. And I think they, um, and I, I think they, I think they work on it. Your answer in this book, or at least your, your recourse is for French thinkers. They give us counsel in the search for the opposite, which is contentment. Of, of some kind. Let's begin with Montaigne, uh, your, your first one. How does Montaigne, and again, I'm, you know, take any, of course, there's many, you say many things about Montaigne, so you can just take one or two threads. How does Montaigne advise that we reach contentment? So Montaigne is the, is the as you said, this is the, the, the thinker with whom we begin this book. 
He's a 16th century author who lived through France's terrible three-way wars of religion in the 16th century. And Montaigne looked at this terrible war that touched him directly. At one point, a war party invaded the courtyard of his chateau. At another point, he was taken hostage while out riding along the highway and robbed and, and almost executed. And so Montaigne got, he had a taste of the wars of religion firsthand. And Montaigne looked at this and he said, what is animating my contemporaries to behave in this way? And he thought it was anxiety about the transcendent, the quest for the transcendent, the kinds of big questions that actually I like to encourage students to ask, questions of like, what is the highest good? What would make a human being happy? And so I, I think Montaigne has a two-pronged approach to dealing with the kind of passion of fanaticism of his time and encouraging a new kind of contentment. His, the first prong of his approach is that he makes a very powerful case for skepticism. He lays out the whole history of philosophy, and he sees 288 different schools of thought on the question of the highest good. <laughs> and he sees, he sees that many of the people who are advancing these visions of, uh, of contentment are themselves kind of ridiculous like the stargazing Thales who stumbles into a well or, or Diogenes the cynic who lived in a barrel. He thinks these people are, are preposterous and he doesn't think we should take them seriously. And so he makes a case that we can't really know the highest good. And that's, that's, that's prong one of his attack. And that kind of skepticism really permeates modern life. Prong two is he says, we don't need to. The, uh, you can live a perfectly satisfying life without caring about the question of the highest good. And so he shows us a way of kind of uh, attempting to dabble your way to happiness. Since we can't know the highest good, let's not try. Let's just partake a little bit of all the goods. So we'll go for a horseback ride. At the, um, we'll do a little gardening. We'll write, but we won't take it too seriously. We'll write essays instead of treatises. The, uh, you know, we'll, we'll read books, but, 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 but uh, you know, things like, like, Ovid, which Montaigne regards as light reading instead of like Aristotle, which he would regard as heavy reading. So he, you know, he travels, the, um, but he's, he's more or less a tourist. He's not like an explorer or a pilgrim. He does everything with a light touch. He's got a wonderful formulation for this. He says, and it, it has to do with death. He says, I want death to find me planting my cabbages, but nonchalant about it and still more about my unfinished garden. And this is, you know, this is, this is Montaigne nonchalance, not caring too much. So if we give up on the question of the sumum bonum, we can just partake a little bit of everything. We could seek a variegated vision of happiness, lots of little things, nothing too much as the ancient adage had it, but also nothing too little. The, um, we're going to try a little bit of everything. We sort of soften up that, that, that ancient approach by adding this, this modern corollary. And Montaigne, you know, he, the essays are an autobiographical book, and he paints a portrait of himself living this kind of life, of kind of uh, splendid dilettantism. And he makes it look good. And it's an enormously, the essays are an enormously influential book. Yeah. Basically, all educated people in Europe read them for a couple of centuries after Montaigne's death. And, and a woman named Sarah Bakewell wrote a wonderful biography of him that became a surprise bestseller in the year 2010. So, you know, Montaigne is still drawing, uh, you know, he still has a tremendous appeal the, um, to modern readers. There's a phrase here, quote, 
conservatism of convenience. What is that? Yes. Montaigne lived in this time of great political turmoil. And one should say that the political turmoil of Montaigne's time was inseparable from its religious turmoil. He calls the French government uh, notre uh, police ecclesiastique, our ecclesiastical polity. And so Montaigne sees all this turmoil and he wants nothing to do with it. And so he's a conservative in the sense that he thinks that the Protestant quest for innovation has caused a great deal of the trouble. But the interesting thing about Montaigne's conservatism is that it has effectively no substance. So he's not a guy like Edmund Burke, who thinks, look, we've got long, tried and true ways of doing things. And if we think about those ways of doing things, we can find in them a latent wisdom. Montaigne doesn't think there's any latent wisdom in France's aristocratic order or its monarchy or anything like this. He just thinks that it's too much trouble to try to change things. And so it, 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 it's spectacularly inconvenient because it is causing a civil war in his country. And so this is so Montaigne is is sort of a conservative, but he's not a conservative on substantive grounds. He's a, he's a conservative on the grounds that it's better not to bust things up in the way that so many of his contemporaries were doing. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. Next comes Pascal, whom you regard as something of a unique combination of that mathematical, rational, logician scientist and the Augustinian Christian. How does he combine those two things? Pascal is maybe the most, all the, all the writers that we treat in this book, Montaigne, Pascal, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and Alexis de Tocqueville, they're all extraordinary uh, geniuses. But Pascal is maybe the most, uh, most extraordinary one. Um, the, the French writer Chateaubriand called, it, called him a frightening genius. Hmm. And one can really see the reason for this, because Pascal was a, an extraordinary mathematician. He discovered what we, what we call now Pascal's triangle, which is the, the basis of, of probability theory. He also made uh, major contributions in geometry. The, he also invented the world's first working calculator. It could, it could add, subtract, multiply, and divide numbers up to eight digits. And he did this in the 1640s and, and 50s. The, um, there, are, there are still several of these of Pascal's calculators around in the world, and they still work. <laughs> Which is, you know, if you think about what's going to become of your Texas instruments in, in, in 400 years, the, um, the prospects are probably not quite as good. Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to this, Pascal, uh, he's a major physicist. He discovered the phenomena of the weight of air and destroyed the ancient scholastic commonplace that nature abhors a vacuum. He's, he's a philanthropist. He gave Paris its first public transportation system, the five-cent carriages. 
He's an important literary stylist who wrote the Provincial Letters, which are another great bestseller of the of, of France's old regime. And then he's this this spectacularly important religious apologist, writing his pensée. The I mean, it's important to say about the pensée that Pascal had a plan for a book, which he called an apology for the Christian religion. But he didn't complete his plan. He died at only 39 years of age, and he had made lots of notes and um, given some lectures. And it's from those things that his friends and uh, family put together the book that we know now as the Pensée, or the Thoughts. And it's one of the first known collections of literary remains. So Pascal was, on the one hand, a, re- a very great scientist. And on the other hand, he was a very serious Christian. And I think these two things come together because if we think of uh, Pascal read Montaigne is in many ways reacting to Montaigne. And what he sees in Montaigne is an effort to show that nature can be complete without grace, that we don't need grace, that nature is enough. And that it's, um, I got that phrase, nature complete without grace from the great 19th century literary critic, Saint Bove, who, who wrote a great book about, about Pascal. So Nature Complete Without Grace is the Montaignan project. And Pascal says, wait a minute, if we actually look at what uh, modern science is showing us about nature, it looks like less of a home for the human soul than ever. Nature, as modern science discovers it, is it's, it, not only does it not abhor a vacuum, it is a vacuum. Hmm. Pascal describes, uh, he says, the eternal silence of these infinite spaces frightens me. So he, he, he looks at modern man and he says, because of what modern science shows us about nature, we discover our, ourselves to be more, terrifying, more terrifyingly alone than ever. And thus our incentive for existential seeking is greater than ever. And that's what makes Pascal a Christian, is that he's, he's looking for God, and he's looking for a God who stands outside nature, but also comes into nature in the way that the God of the Incarnation does. You ask on page 67 in the Pascal section, why do human beings hate one another? What is Pascal's answer? This is one of the most shocking things that Pascal has to say. He thinks that all human beings, with, with a very few exceptions, hate one another. And he has the most fascinating analysis of why this is. Pascal thinks when human beings look at themselves, what they see is imperfection, susceptibility to to disease, eventual mortality, anxiety, misery, vice. They see a lot of not very pleasant or attractive stuff. But they want permanent happiness flourishing life, genuine knowledge. And so there's this enormous gap between what we desire and what we can't help but desire, on the one hand, and what we can actually give ourselves. And what we wish to do is, and so we see ourselves to be sort of caught in this gap between what we want and what we can give ourselves. And other people see the, 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 the unfortunate facts about us, the, they see that we're not as happy as we pretend to be. They see that we're not as good as we pretend to be. They see that you know, we're, we're fallible and frail just like everybody else is. And we hate them for seeing that about us. 
And so we are in part opposed to other people because we're trying to deceive ourselves. We're trying to talk ourselves into believing that we can be contented holes unto ourselves. There's something in us that knows that we can't, and other people certainly see that we're not all we're, uh, all we're cracked up to be in our own eyes. And so we, we really resent <laughs> the fact that they see that about us, and that makes us detest them. What is the place of anguish in Pascal's outlook? So Pascal has a, a wonderful few sentences that I'd like to read here. Yeah. He says, there are only three kinds of people. Those who serve God, having found him. Those who are busy seeking him, not having found him. And those who live without seeking or finding him. The first are reasonable and happy. The last are foolish and unhappy. Those in the middle are unhappy and reasonable. <laughs> and so Pascal is trying to take people who are, haven't found God and aren't seeking him and turn them into people who are at least seeking God. And he understands that quest to be an anguished one. In other words, to get us launched on this search, Pascal thinks he needs to show us ourselves honestly. And what we see when we encounter this honest picture of ourselves is a combination of both greatness and misery, as Pascal tells the story. And so human beings are on the one hand uh, miserable in some of the ways that I've just talked about. But on the other hand, they're great in a way like nothing else in nature is great. And so Pascal doesn't think too highly of philosophers, but he thinks some philosophers actually master their passions. And he says to us, yeah, you know, what kind of, you know, no stone could have done that. <laughs> the, no animal does that, this, this mastery of the passions. There's something, or, or take thinking, for example. Human beings, you know, Pascal tells us the nature, that, that the universe is eventually going to crush us. That's, that's the inevitable human fate. But the interesting thing is that we think, and as far as we know, the universe doesn't. <laughs> and so there's something in us that is on the one hand destined to be crushed by the universe, this is why we're miserable, but is also sort of greater than the universe, and that we think and it doesn't. <laughs> hmm. And so man is both great and miserable. And the proper response, the honest response to that is a kind of anguish, a kind of longing for a life that would, that would be fitting to our greatness and a kind of, uh, and a kind of depression at the very many ills of, of human life that we cannot avoid. And so Pascal, in a way, wants us to, to face our anguish, which he thinks, by the way, is already there. And therefore, he wants to get us on the move, get us to seek. Pascal says this beautiful sentence. He says, l'homme passe l'homme. In, in, in English, that's man transcends man. Man transcends man. We transcend ourselves. He wants us to be honest with ourselves about this and follow that transcending movement of the human heart. Okay, that character Jean-Jacques. Why, why does, uh, what, what is this turn of uh, Rousseau's to radical solitude, as you call it? Yes. So um, Rousseau is a fascinating figure. He's, he's much studied and, and much reviled. He is a man of the peak of the Enlightenment. He, uh, his, his, his publications reached their, their apex in the, in the 1750s and the 1760s. He knows all the major players of Enlightenment Paris, the, um, where he spent uh, much of his life, people like Voltaire and, and, and Diderot. 
But Rousseau is a um, is uh, the, many of the Enlightenment philosophers see him as a traitor, as somebody who doesn't go along with them in celebrating modern progress as having delivered us to a state of uh, human contentment that that people have never known before. And so, in this sense, Rousseau is this sort of a strange combination of Montaigne and Pascal. Like Pascal, he thinks modern human beings are unhappy. But like Montaigne, he thinks we can be happy in a natural way. And so where Pascal blames the emptiness of nature and our need for transcendence for our unhappiness, Rousseau locates the blame elsewhere. He famously says, man is by nature good. So the problem is not natural. But he says, but men are wicked. And he says that in the same sentence that he says that men are by nature good. And what he wants to show us here is that the problem with us is society. It is society that makes us wicked. And Rousseau has this wonderful system of thought in which he investigates lots of different ways out of this kind of social wickedness that he sees around him in Paris. And he sees the heart of that wickedness as dividedness. People want to be both for themselves and to appear to be for others. And this turns them against themselves. So. Rousseau has lots of ways of getting out of this dividedness. And the way that you just mentioned, solitude, is most acutely described by him in his autobiographical writings, particularly the last autobiography. Rousseau wrote three, bi- uh, three autobiographies. One might wonder about someone who does that justly. The, uh, but the last of them is called The Reveries of the Solitary Walker. And therein, Rousseau describes himself living on an island, St. Peter's Island in the middle of a Swiss lake. And while he's there, he claims that he finds happiness in solitude on this island, than just floating around in a boat, the um, looking at the sky or sitting on, um, sitting on a little island, the um, watching the waves crash, just listening. And he says the, the core of this, of, this, of this happiness, his version of contentment, is what he calls the sentiment of existence. And so the sentiment of existence is just enjoying existing. I'm just, I'm just lying here in my boat, feeling the pleasure of being alive. And Rousseau thinks that modern life alienates us from the sentiment of existence, and he tries to show us how we can get it back. So that's Rousseau's path to contentment. One of his paths to contentment, but maybe the most important one. Yeah, very good. Number four, we have a few more minutes. Number four, Tocqueville. Tocqueville talks about Americans as being creatures who, who really are a naked soul. What does he mean by the term naked souls? Tocqueville sees Americans as living out a process of the kind of constant stripping away of the civilizational inheritance that forms us. That is, we can receive from the past ways of thinking, ways of comporting ourselves to one another, ways of comporting ourselves toward God, ways of organizing our political life. But he sees modern human beings as inheriting almost by a kind of a sort of unintentional saturation. We have a kind of unthinking skepticism about the past. In this way, we're we're sort of Montaignans who've never read Montaigne. That is, we take the past, as Tocqueville says, says, we take tradition only as information. We don't think that what has come down to us from the past should necessarily guide our lives. And in fact, we have an instinctive 
kind of distaste for it. And so we're constantly sort of overturning things. Hmm. But in the course of doing this, we're kind of stripping ourselves down. So, for example, you know, in the, in the world that you and I know, Mark, as, as educators, if you want to learn to think about human life, if you want really to come to think for yourself, it really helps to make use of other people who have done some good thinking in the past, to read their books, to immerse yourself in them, to see like, hmm, what did Aristotle think about virtue? Why did he lay out you know, this catalog of virtues? What sense does it make to think of greatness of soul as a virtue? In order to, so you could start getting, giving yourself a liberal education, for example, by putting yourself in Aristotle's shoes for a while. And then you could move on. You could, you could walk a mile in the shoes of, I don't know, John Locke, Cicero, Martin Luther King Jr., whoever it is. But Tocqueville says modern human beings are deeply resistant to that activity. It, it, it insults their pride. They don't want to be anybody's apprentice in thinking. And secondly, they're really, like, as you said, they're, <laughs> they're really busy. They don't have time for this kind of thing. They don't have time to meditate the, um, because they live in a democratic society in which everybody has to make his or her way for him or herself. And so they feel the need to be rushing around all the time. And one of the things that we describe in the book is the way in which that attitude has permeated our college campuses, which should be, we think, islands of patience and a culture of haste in which we can slow down and think about things and prepare to live the remainder of our lives on the basis of some of, of, of some serious reflection that we were fortunate enough, some people are fortunate enough to get to do when we're really young. But because we are impatient, because we don't really want to learn from the past, we find that kind of insulting, we tend to leave our souls naked, ill-equipped for thinking through the very questions that would allow us to think for ourselves in the way that we would like to think for ourselves. So that's one way in which we see this, but you can see it in many other dimensions of human life. The book is Why We Are Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment. Uh, ben Story, thank you for joining us. Mark, thanks so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 877- 332-2930.